Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Filmcast, a podcast about movies. I'm David Chen, and I thought my nightmares were bad. Joining me today is Jeff Kanata. I am Jeff Kanata, and I am a piece of filth wrapped in garbage. <laughs> and joining us today, he is a film journalist whose writing has appeared at IndieWire, The New York Times, and The Los Angeles Times, Carlos Aguilar. Hi, guys. I'm excited to talk about the horrors of the mine. <laughs> and we are excited for you to join us for them, Carlos. Uh, thanks so much. Of course, people who are tuning in might be wondering, where is Devinder Hardwar, our normal stalwart uh, co-host? Unfortunately, uh, Devindra has caught the Rona. The Rona has come for Devindra, and uh, we are really bummed out that he can't join us for today. Um, we wish him well. We hope he has a period of very rapid healing and uh, that he's on the mend very soon. He did record a clip uh, that we are going to play during our review that gives us a sense of what he actually thought about the movie that we're going to be discussing today, which is Phil Tippett's Mad God. Uh, available I haven't right seen now. the film, Dave. It is entirely possible that Devendra caught COVID from this movie. <laughs> okay. I don't know if I would go that far. Or, so, or some, some, some disease. disease. Yeah, There's, it's possible. It, it it's does possible. look like this movie is contagious, is what I'm saying. <laughs> you can find more episodes of this podcast at the Filmcast. Uh, email us at slash filmcast at gmail.com. Support this podcast at patreon.com slash filmpodcast. Uh, so we are going to be discussing Mad God today. That's all we're going to be talking about. That's going to be the whole episode, except there is one other follow-up I wanted to make, which is uh, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, uh, Carlos, we had a conversation about sequel titling, right? Sequel titling and how uh, the Jurassic Park movies have very inconsistent sequel titling uh, in terms of the numbers in terms of the punctuation. Uh, like, I don't know if you, you are aware of this, uh, Carlos, but there is no colon in Jurassic World Dominion. You, were you aware of this fact? No, I wasn't, no. Yeah, um, and now you can't unknow it. Um, but <laughs> there is no colon in Jurassic World Dominion. The studio really wanted to, to make sure that there was- You've passed the Rubicon now, Carlos. Yes. There's no going back. There's no going back to the world where you didn't know about- uh, <laughs> the Jurassic World Dominion uh, punctuation. And so I said, I, I, I really hated the fact that it was so inconsistent throughout the franchise. This led friend of the podcast, Danish Syed, to write a uh, Slack message to uh, directed towards me uh, about sequel titling of note. Uh, so I on that podcast, I said, the Police Academy movies have some of the most consistent sequel titling. Um, and here are some consistent title structures of note that Danny Syed put forward. Okay. Um, the before trilogy, you know, before sunset, mm. before uh, yeah. sunrise, before Excellent. midnight, not in that love order. It. Yeah. Great, great. Yes. Love it. Uh, the Godfather part one, part two, part three. Um, although I, I don't think Godfather part one was called part one, right? It was no. just Godfather right. and then Godfather part two, Godfather part three. But I, I like that it is relatively consistent. Um, Lord of the Rings, uh, which had like, you know, Lord of the Rings, colon, Fellowship of the Ring, you know, like that that consistency of titling. Um, the Three Colors trilogy, which is pretty cool. Mm, Three Colors, yeah. you know, you, yeah. you get some consistent titling there. Red, white, and um, blue, right? Uh, I think so, yeah. And then the Ocean movies. Uh, so Oceans 8, 11. Oceans 11, Oceans 12, Oceans 3. Th th those are all beautiful, 
consistent titling. Carlos, do you like a good consistent titling in your sequels, or do you not give a crap? <laughs> no, yeah, definitely. I I think my biggest conflict when it comes to sequel titles is the movies that are, um, I guess the example I'm looking for is like Scream, the new Scream that is just called Scream, which makes no sense to me. Yes, you know, I right? Hate Instead that. of being Scream Five or Scream something, Scream Twenty Years Later or whatever you want to call it, but just naming it, you know, assuming that everyone would know that is the new part without any sort of like messaging in there, felt strange to me. Yeah, because then you're forced to put the year after it. You're like the Scream twenty twenty two. Yeah, it's uh, annoying. I, yeah, I, I agree, and I think it's probably like for marketing reasons, right? They Scream five makes it sound like an old person's movie for old people, you know. Where if you just say Scream, it's like ooh, the ni- the young generation can discover it or something. Um, but I agree, it's very confusing. Um, okay, uh, Danish also went on to say uh, the following. Shout out to the original Apes films. Uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, Conquest yeah. of the Battle. You know, that's some, that's some good titling. You know, that's good some stuff. like cr- a creative, unique phrase for every uh, everyone. Um, yeah. Also, uh, he calls out the Bond uh, franchise for like completely unique titles. I with some I, I was actually right? frustrated at myself that I didn't think of the Bond franchise when we were originally talking about it because, yes, I, although I will say a, a slight caveat, while I think those are the the gold standard, the gold finger standard for, uh, for movie titles where it's like, hey, you just are going to know it's a Bond movie. We'll come up with a cool title for this movie. I love that. However, yeah. my caveat is I wish that they consistently stuck with the cool sort of uh, paradoxical titling, you know, the, mm-hmm. the fun, the no one lives forever, the uh, no the, time to die, no you know? time to die. Right. Because you, every once in a while you get in there, you know, like a, a Goldfinger or just a, uh, you know, just a single word, which is, you know, it's fine, but it would be so much cooler if every single one of them was the, the phrase, the sort of strange rolls off the tongue, but kind of has a double meaning phrase. Mm-hmm. You you want them all to be kind of weird and off kilter in some way, as opposed to Casino yeah. Royale or something like that. Exactly. You yeah. want every everyone to be like a quantum of solace kind of deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I would prefer a better movie than Quantum of Solace, but that's a different point. Yeah. I've never Indeed. I've never seen the Thor sequels, but I think their titles are terrible. I've never seen. Thor, Ranga, whatever, and then the new one is Love and Thunder. Never seen them, but the titles seem to me very strange and sort of like nonsensical. They really follow no pattern. Well, really, having uh, I, having just seen Love and Thunder, it justifies its title in a very interesting way. I would say. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, Carlos, that's a weird one to attack for me because I think they're actually all—they're not great titles. I don't think they're great, but they all kind of like tie into. Uh, the subject of the movie. Thor the Dark World, Thor Ragnarok, and then Thor Love and Thunder. They're all, they're all kind of related to the subject. Not not all good movies, certainly. Um, but, and they uh, all have colons, Dave. That's the important all, and part. They all have colons. I, I will agree that it is difficult to know which one is which, right? Like, in what order they go in. Like, that is yeah. that is difficult. But um, but I kind of like them. I, I don't know. I guess, uh, did you like Thor Ragnarok at least, Carlos? I've never oh, seen them. So it, it oh, probably, my, my dislike for them extends probably from <laughs> having never seen them and just, you know, wondering what a Ranger is. You, you just dislike it on a pure sonic level is kind of yes. what you're saying. 
Yes. Uh, gotcha. Ra- Ragnarok okay. is a reference to actual Viking mythology. Y- yes, yes, yeah. yes. Um, the Dark World, I don't think is, though, <laughs> potentially. I'm not no. sure. I'm not <laughs> Neither sure. is Love and Thunder. Neither is Love and Thunder. Neither is Love and Thunder. <laughs> okay. Um, other, th- I'm still going off Danish's messages. I, ke- I can't believe he, he must have just come, off with this, uh, come up with this off the dome, man. Um, he just had this all in his mind. Um, okay. Uh, uh, unique sequel names. Unbreakable. Split. Glass. Yeah, uh, good. pretty pretty good set of of unique sequel names, I have to say. So, well, I like them because they're all they're all sort of. Uh, uh, I mean, I guess glass isn't technically an adjective, but they're all uh, descriptors, right? And uh, but they're also you know uh, character specific in in. Uh, they they could all be adjectives technically, right? Unbreakable, split could be an adjective. Um, glass could be. Yeah, I'm saying glass mine. I don't think glass is technically ever an adjective. You can say a glass cane, a glass eye. You know that's an adjective. So, hmm. um, anyway, uh, I, I, I dig those titlings. Um, franchises that retroactively change the title in order to be totally consistent. You guys know what I'm talking about here. What is a franchise that retroactively changed the title in order to be consistent? Well, like a new hope. Yeah, you know. I think that's right. I think that's right. But the yeah. one he was referring to was Indiana Jones. Mm. Indiana Jones. And the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, I think it was just Raiders of the Lost Ark originally, right? right? Yeah. So it was then changed to Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, which, uh, I, I don't know how I feel about that, honestly. I'm, I'm torn about that. Because on the one hand, I love consistency in my titling. But on the other hand, you know, uh, you, should, you shouldn't change the past. Uh, which is obviously well, a lesson think, that George Lucas has taken to heart. So, <laughs> I think your gripe there is with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? If it had just been called the Temple of Doom. Right, 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 right. Sure. Or Ra- Raiders of the Temple of Doom. <laughs> well, no, no, no. But you could have called it Raiders of the Lost Ark and then Indiana Jones of the Temple of Doom. It wouldn't have made much sense, but it would have been, you know, you could have just kept it that way. You know? well, that's what they did. That's what they did for years. And then they yes. retroactively changed it to yeah. Indiana Jones and the Raiders yeah, of the Lost Ark. Yeah, they're like, can't, can't take this anymore. Can't take it anymore. Yeah. Um, okay. Other artful breaks in convention, Danishless. Um, Saw franchise. So in general, it is Saw plus the Roman numeral. Uh, until you get to saw the, saw the last chapter. Then there was a movie called Jigsaw and then a movie called Spiral. And those movies were like meaningfully different than the movies that came before. Uh, and so it makes sense to to change the titling. Uh, mm-hmm. Which I thought was like, yeah, that's kind of a cool, cool point. I think this is um, kind of the, the philosophy that Sylvester Stallone has taken, which is also like, hey, I want to demark the fact that we are in a more grounded, right. realistic tone. And that's why we're calling it Rocky Balboa. Yes. Or we're calling it, you know, John Rambo or whatever the heck he called the last one. Yeah. I think he just called it Rambo. If I, well, he called it Rambo Last Blood, I think, was the last one. Um, but then the one before that was simply Rambo. So it pulled a thing that uh, Carlos said he didn't like, which was like just titling it, you know, Ram- like the movie Rambo, the 2008 yeah. film, you know? Um well, but, but, the but, Rambo uh, franchise is is remarkably uh, prescient in the sense that it it called its first movie First Blood. Yes, <laughs> which <laughs> most most movies don't have the uh, the cojones the full, to yes. just lay it all on the table and say, "Hey, there's going to be more of these." <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Carlos, what were you going to say? No, it reminds me of when an artist releases a novel, like a self titled album, but it's not their first album. 
you know like it's like their sixth <laughs> album and it's just the self-titled album and it's just right. like you know like shakira's sixth album is titled right. shakira and it's like it makes no sense to me <laughs> yeah You're like hey we know who you are already. Oh, hey, if we can, if we can, if we can sidebar into music for a second, what is your feelings, Carlos, about the album having its own unique title or the album being titled one of the tracks on the album? Mm, mm, interesting. I think unique title is better. I agree. Yeah. It bums me out because it's like, oh, so this is the most special song on this whole album, I guess. Uh, really? I, I like it. I like it because when I get to that track, I'm always like, ooh, this is like a fun little Easter egg. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but the expectations of that one song are too high because it's a song that gives you know the name to the to the album. Right. So I feel like, and then it's not that great, and it's sort of like, oh, then it's it, true. It, I agree. It's like clearly, the title, it's not yeah, great, yeah. The really, album, it's not great. Clearly, they liked this song way more than the others for some reason, but I don't know if I agree with them. Also, <laughs> uh, also, Dave, it can't be an Easter egg if it's literally hidden on the cover of the album. When I'm <laughs> when I'm listening to Lady Gaga's "The Fame Monster" and I get to "The Fame," I'm like, "Ooh, interesting! The, this is the thing she's talking about in the cover." You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. Anyway, I was going to say that the the Matrix series is a very well titled. Yes, um, series reloaded Re revolutions resurrections they kept it all with the the art Agreed. Yeah, the R good word. consistency yeah. also going back to rambo you know the first movie was just called first blood it was not called rambo first blood so so uh you know technically uh carlos rambo the 2008 film is the first time they used just the word rambo in the title so I actually, uh, I'm, I'm definitely a bigger fan of that than you've already used the title in the past before, right? Um, so I want to call out one more music thing just because uh, no one has ever done this. My favorite artist of all time is Prince. And uh, Prince named an album an unpronounceable symbol. And then after he had already done that, named himself the unpronounceable symbol. Mm -hmm. So it's an album that carries his name many, many years after he'd already put out lots of albums, but it's a name, he retroactively has his name. That's, that's mm. some, some baller shit right there. Yeah, 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 so true. It's also so a true. fantastic album. Yeah, yeah. Um, but finally, I, uh, uh, Danish writes, uh, special shout out to the worst title logic, uh, Christopher Nolan's Batman franchise. Mm, yeah. Uh, inconsistent structure, but the reason is what bothers me. The fact that the Dark Knight did so well, they broke the structure so they could include the entire title in the sequel so that there's no mistake what this is a sequel to. Incredibly frustrating. Incredibly frustrating. Yeah, so that was Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and then The Dark Knight Rises. I, w I w agree with you that I would have liked The Dark Knight Rises more if it was called something that didn't have the words The Dark Knight in it. Right? Exactly, yes. Carlos, what do you think? Or are you one of the 99% of the population that doesn't care about any of this? <laughs> On this one specifically, I don't really I don't really mind. I, I only like the Dark Knight and maybe Batman Begins. But I wanted to bring up a more esoteric thing. Like, have you seen the titles of of, of Disney sequels, like straight to video Disney sequels to like their their hits? Like the mm. sequel to Aladdin is called The Return of Jafar. That's yes. really the title. You know, yeah. and then the Pocahontas 2 is like Journey to the New World. Like, I feel like they're doing too much for these movies that no one really cares about and few people have seen. <laughs> they're yeah. doing too much, like, they should, the, the titles are too elaborate, is that what you're saying? Or Yeah, yeah, like, they should just be like, Pocahontas 2, watch it if you want, you know what it's about. You know, like, you don't need to add Journey to a New World. 
or yeah. Cinderella Tree, if you ever knew that it was a third one, you know, a twist in time, you know. So I, 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 I think. Well, first of all, um, I, I'm just gonna say Return of Jafar, and I think there was another one called Aladdin. Um, King of Thieves or Prince of Thieves, Aladdin and the King of Thieves, the 1996 film. Um, those were an essential part of my childhood. It was such a big deal back then. Like when I was a kid, it was like such a big deal that these movies were getting sequels at all. You know, like because because yeah. Aladdin was such a formative experience watching it in the theater, and so it's like, oh wow, I'm watching a sequel to what, in my opinion, at that point was one of the biggest movies of all time. But it happens to be on a VHS tape, right? I think the um, Aladdin ones are the exception in that they're better than the other sequels. But when you get to like Hodgebang of Notre Dame 2 and Pocahontas 2 and, you know, yes. Mulan 2, it feels like they're really just, you know, cashing in on the VHS. They're a little too, they're a little too flashy uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of the titling. You, you want it to be more elegant. Well, Hunchback of Notre Dame 2 was just, was just Hunchback of Notre Dame 2. But uh, apparently the movie is not very good, right? Um, but I think what you're saying is, it sounds like Carlos, you're a man who appreciates a a good, consistent, you know, just a part one, part two. You're like John Wick chapter two. You're a fan of that kind of stuff, yes? Yeah, and also I feel like if you're going to have an elaborate title, I want the movie to match that energy. Oh like, yes, if, yes, you know, like I'm saying that a lot of these Disney sequels are not even that good to sort of like complicate it that much. You know, like if, if there are really good movies, I'll be like, okay, go crazy with the titles, but otherwise, just put a number on it and sell the VHS. I, yeah, you know, I Dave, you. you did you did bring up the Batman franchise, so it's worth noting how much it painted itself into a corner for years. You know, it's like you have Batman, then you have Batman Returns, which sounds like <laughs> a good title, but you're already in bad territory because now now he's going to return again. He returned, again, yeah, yeah. you know. He's oh, so now what are you going to do? How are you going to one up Returns? Well, you got to go Batman Forever. Well, now you're really screwed. Yep. Batman Forever. Now what's Beyond Forever? There's no Beyonding Forever. You can't even say Batman Beyond. You got to say Batman and Robin. Okay, well now you've added a second character just to. <laughs> it's it's yeah. a mess. I agree. I agree. Um, but yeah, uh, Carlos, I like the sentiment you're advocating for there, which is that this idea that if you have a sequel title like Aladdin and the Prince of Thieves, the the movie quality needs to justify. It. Like it's that is a long title, right? That is a long title, <laughs> Aladdin and the King of Thieves. Um, you need to justify it being that long by the movie being excellent, which I don't think it was in that case. Unfortunately, uh, it wasn't bad, but it, you know, it's not like transcendently good. Um, Jeff, what do you think? You know, longer titles should be better movies. What do you think? I think so. I think so. <laughs> I mean, right? I think better. We just, let, I'm just an advocate for better movies in general, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I think if you're, uh, if you're, if you're framing your film, in, in such a grandiose fashion, then yeah, yes. you got to live up to that. I think if your movie fair. is going to be uh, 2014's "A Pigeon Sat on a Branch Reflecting on Existence," <laughs> it better be freaking transcendent. Which, by the way, that movie was. So, it is. Yes, big FYI. fan. Yes, yes. There you go. Okay. Well, thanks to Danny Syed, friend of the show, for writing in uh, with all that stuff, and a lot of people have also written in on the titles. But I thought Danish really broke it down in a very detailed way so impressive as um, he always is indeed indeed thanks danish thanks for uh, all those notes on sequel titling and again you can always write into us let us know your thoughts on this completely inconsequential stuff at slash filmcast at gmail.com hey i want to jump in here and tell you about our sponsor nord vpn do you use a vpn 
Think about using a VPN. It's useful. You want to shield your data from snoops and criminals? NordVPN shields your IP address and secures your online traffic with state-of-the-art encryption. You can safely listen to podcasts like this one, stream shows, or simply browse in complete privacy. You can secure every device you own. It works with every major operating system. NordVPN can be on Windows, Mac OS, Linux, Android, iOS. You can connect up to six devices separately with just one subscription or simply set up NordVPN on your router to protect your whole household. Maybe you want to listen to shows abroad. Don't leave your shows behind when you go. Connect to a NordVPN server in your home country and safely enjoy content as if you never left wherever you travel. There's so many reasons to use a VPN and NordVPN is the fastest VPN on the planet with over 5,400 servers worldwide and the game-changing NordLynx protocol. NordVPN lets you stay safe online without slowing down. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com filmcast or use the code filmcast to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan plus one additional month for free plus a bonus gift. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That's NordVPN, N-O-R-D-V-P-N.com slash F-I-L-M-C-A-S-T. Before we move on, I want to call out that uh, Mad God is a movie that has virtually no dialogue, and therefore the trailer has virtually no dialogue. Uh, but we're going to get to our review of Mad God, which is streaming right now on Shudder and AMC+, starting right now. Here is a clip from the trailer. There you go. That's a clip from the trailer for Mad God. I hope it sets the tone for this conversation. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from the inter internet. I, I do want to say we are not going to have a spoiler section for this movie because, uh, as Jeff Kanata put it, quite frankly, he would welcome spoilers to understand what the heck is going on in this film. But here is a plot summary as far as people on the internet can figure out. Quote, a figure known as the assassin descends from the heavens into a nightmarish pit full of monsters, titans, and cruelty. This is a film from... You're not direct allowed to say known as if there's no way to know that. <laughs> known as in the... No one you knows know, that. There's the no known summer. as. Come on. This movie is directed by Phil Tippett, who is a legend in the world of visual effects. Uh, he was famously a dinosaur supervisor on Jurassic Park. Uh, and he has been working in visual effects for decades. He's worked for ILM and for DreamWorks. And uh, he's worked on films like Starship Troopers, Dragonheart, Jurassic Park, RoboCop, and so on. Uh, Carlos, you profiled Phil Tippett for the New York Times. I don't, I don't think you're using that term correctly, David. Uh, wh which, which I don't term? think he works in visual effects. I think he works in special effects. Um, yeah, I, it's true. Although he has... He has been nominated in the category of Best Visual Effects for the Academy Awards. So mm. he's he's done both. He's done both. 
Um, but yes, it's 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 correct to call out the difference between special effects, which are like practical things using physical objects, and visual effects, which are largely in computers, right? So um, that that is a good distinction to make. But I think he has worked in both, and certainly I think this film is a combination of both things. Um, I don't know. Well, I don't know how much how much visual effects there are in it. I'm, I wonder how mm-hmm. much. I'm curious about that. But anyway, go ahead. So. Carlos, you profiled Phil for the New York Times, and I'm curious if you can tell us a little bit about uh, what was behind the making of this film and kind of what motivated him to to create something like Mad God. Right. So he started working on this uh, soon after he worked on the RoboCop films uh, with Paul Verhoeven in the early 80s. And so... Uh, what he describes is that, you know, he had been reading a lot about paleontology and theology and a lot of different subjects and sort of like, you know, religion, of course, because this movie is sort of like very uh, heavy on the religious undertones. And that, you know, he had a, a simple idea for a couple of images and made, you know, back then created a few shots and then realized that it would be too much of a sort of job for him to do it alone and let, let it sort of die for a couple, like a decade or so until he was able to to keep on, on making it when he got more help from volunteers in schools around Berkeley where his studio is based. And so at that point, you know, it was his dreams that he was having, sort of like nightmarish dreams that influenced, you know, uh, the making of Mad God. And, you know, he'd say that during the, the many years that he worked on it, he had a lot of dreams. He was, you know, every night he would have dreams and he will wake up and write them down and and sort of like begin creating from there. But there was never, you know, there w- it was never meant to be a feature. Like really they made it in like 15 minute increments over the years. They they will do a Kickstarter and sort of like ha- have enough money to make 15 minutes and then another 15 minutes. And by the time they got to like the first sort of like 45 or so, uh, he decided that he was going to go all the way. But there was never like a screenplay that determined, you know, from the beginning, this was going to happen. He was basically figuring it out as it went. And so in that sense, you know, he talks about how he's always, uh, he's not seeking to find anything spe- specific. It's just sort of like going along with, you know, his inspiration. And I think you get that sense from the film. I think that what makes it so fascinating to me that someone can have such complete freedom you know, and this, you know, madness to, to make it, you know, I feel like the film itself is almost like a reflection of how he felt about himself and about his obsessions with different things. And, you know, he himself is the mad god of this sort of universe and, you know, the religious undertones that are blending within. It's a very, it's a strange, a strange, strange film, but I do find it fascinating. I find him very unique, you know, he's this man who has this very long white beard and, you know, he speaks in you know, about all these different subjects in 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 a way that, that you know that he's been obsessed with them for, for a very long time. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating. And where did it come from, from all these things that he was reading and, you know, his dreams, you know, very strange dreams for sure. Indeed, indeed. I, I think hearing you describe it and then watching the movie, it makes a lot more sense why the movie feels structured the way it, it is, you know. Um, Mad God largely is done in stop motion animation um, with extremely vivid textured materials. Um, But it kind of is episodic insofar as you can describe the plot at all. It's episodic. There's like little mini episodes that happen um, throughout the movie and they don't necessarily feel super connected. Um, Somebody on Letterboxd I read compared this to like you're wandering into a modern art museum and you see something projected on the wall 
uh, that's like looks like it's part of a, a visual art exhibit. Uh, and you kind of wandered into the middle of it. Uh, and so you don't know what the context was. That's kind of what it feels like to watch this whole movie, you know? Yeah, he in was very inspired by uh, the painter Hieronymus Bosch, uh, you know, whose paintings, you know, I guess for anyone not familiar, you know, he's a, a Dutch painter, uh, I don't know, from like the 16th, 15th century, whatnot, whose paintings are very much like monsters and humans and these very sort of like, you know, demonic creatures interacting with, you know, uh, with people and sort of like these very nightmarish things. And if you look at some of those paintings, you will see that there's definitely a sort of direct relationship between what Phil Tippett is sort of aiming for. So sort of like evoking, you know, the, you know, the otherworldly, but in a way that feels, you know, real and tangible. Yeah, yeah. It's a great call out. Uh, if you look at the paintings, they're all also very like intricate, elaborate. You know, there's a lot of figures, there's a lot of uh, detail in the backgrounds, and that's certainly the case here as well. Okay, I want to play a clip from uh, our co-host, Devinder Hardwar, uh, who couldn't be here today, unfortunately, um, but he definitely wanted to weigh in on this movie. Uh, and I'm going to play a clip from him. Uh, again, this is about his thoughts on Mad God, which is streaming on Shudder and AMC+. Hey, everyone. I really wish I could be with the rest of the crew to review this movie because it is truly a unique work of art. But also, it's coming to me as my daughter has come down with COVID. And I have also come down with COVID because I'm taking care of her. And uh, it's really made me think a lot about, uh, you know, just the state of the world right now, not to mention everything else happening on the news. So as you can imagine, I'm just feeling a little bleak about things right now, um, trying to maintain a little hope here. And this movie just kind of struck me as a really unique thing, because uh, let me put it this way. If there is a hell, I'd imagine this is what it's like exploring it. Mad God is brutal, disgusting, and bleak as hell. It's filled with unspeakable and unimaginable horrors. Um, and on the whole, it's really not that easy to watch. And yet... Every frame, every element of this thing is so fascinating to watch that I can't really wait to learn more about how Phil Tippett made every segment and what he's trying to say. Honestly, I'm just wondering if this guy is okay, too. Talk about just apropos. You know, it's truly wild to have a movie that uh, involves a lot of screaming infant sounds while another infant is screaming throughout my house. An infant that I can't see right now because I'm trying to isolate. So, you know, this movie hit me hard in many, many ways. I think my main takeaway, though, is that it is truly just showing us what's possible with stop motion animation and just, you know, animation in general. I've always talked about, um, to me, the potential for animation feels limitless. And this movie is now the latest example of something I can point to to say, hey, you can really do anything with this style of filmmaking. It's not a movie I can easily recommend to everybody, but honestly, I'm just heartened that uh, for Phil Tippett, you know, as somebody who's been in this business for a while, and I feel like sometimes for aging artists, they kind of lose that experimental shine they have as, uh, as youngsters and film school students. This movie is full entirely of that energy, and I'm just grateful he made it. All right, some thoughts from our co-host, Devinder Hardwar. We are wishing him well and hope for, uh, hoping for a fast recovery for him. Uh, but he found Mad God to be very compelling. Um, I share many of his thoughts but I got to ask you, Jeff Kanata, what did you think of Mad God? Well, Dave, I guess you could say what I thought of Mad God is best summed up in the form of a limerick. I honestly don't understand how the work on this is even planned. 
A series of scenes, who knows what it means, but at least it was all made by hand. Nice. Very nice. A, a tribute to uh, the handmade feeling and texture of stop-motion animation, Jeff. Indeed. Uh, I, I kind of agree with Davindra. You know, this isn't a movie that I would recommend to anyone. Um, it, it, it is not a pleasant experience to watch. It is barely coherent. It is uh, strange and often disturbing. Um, but it is a a piece of art that feels uh, feels urgent and um, important to its creator. And in that sense, you go, well, there's something that this person is working through that we are all witnessing. And I'm not always a huge fan of that, right? I mean, I, I in a lot of ways, this does, as Devinder pointed out, it does feel like a student film, uh, and and not always in the best ways, right? But it is interesting to have a, a a creator who has been around and been been important for this long, for decades, um, do something that is this avant-garde and personal. Um, you know, as I, as I was watching it, w- one thing I should mention, I, I think I've brought this up before on the show, but I idolized Phil Tippett as a kid, as a very young kid. Um, I thought that I, what I wanted to do for a living is to work in special effects um, or visual effects. Uh, but special effects in particular when I was a young kid because visual effects didn't exist. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I watched the the behind the scenes of uh, Empire Strikes Back and saw how the AT-AT sequence and the Tauntaun sequences were were made. And I thought that's what I wanted to do with my life. I saw that. And, and the other behind the scenes... Um, featurette that really influenced me was the behind the scenes of, of the dark crystal. Um, but I just thought that's the most incredible thing you could possibly do is, is take these inanimate things and breathe life into them through the magic of cinema. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And then as I got older, uh, I, uh, you know, the the visual effects started happening, you know, uh, uh, Michael Jackson morphed into a jaguar and i was like well that's what i that's what i want to do that's incredible and so you know and i was such a huge computer nerd i went to college uh thinking that's what i wanted to do with my life i interned at this place called pdi pacific data images um i got an intern with them at i don't know 15 years old or something crazy young um my dad had to drive me there uh, but that's the company that did the black or white video. They did the Jaguar morph. They were like one of the first uh, companies that did a, a morph effect at all. So I, I was really engaged with this. And I, and I read about Phil Tippett. I, I think I've mentioned on the show before how much the Cinefix magazine um, meant to me. I collected the Cinefix magazine. I read in detail about Phil Tippett and all those guys uh, and how they, how they did what they did. Uh, and as I was... Uh, as I was watching Mad God, uh, I wrote down uh, a corollary to the <laughs> don't meet your heroes. You know, uh, we always hear don't meet your heroes. <laughs> I-, I think the corollary to don't meet your heroes is don't watch your heroes passion project. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, well, your, your limerick was quite positive, but I don't know if your feelings on the film are positive, right, Jeff? I, I don't either. Um, I, I I think it is it is an impressive thing up there on the screen, um, and that is I think that is an undeniable fact. The amount of labor, of care, of effort, of time that is represented up 
on the screen by Mad God is impressive. And I think stop motion as a medium, as an art form, is something that I will always admire. I, you know, I love Leica films. I love, uh, you know, old Rankin and Bass stuff. Like it is just incredibly amazing to me when these inanimate things move and tell stories like that. And the level of detail that is represented in this, in this film is impressive. It is incredible. And every single scene is just filled with tons of detail. Uh, you know, grime and gunk and oxified metals and just like there's so much grunge and and an icky feeling that is lovingly put on film that you you can't help but admire it. And like I said in the limerick, I I, I honestly don't even understand how how this thing can happen. It, like, what does Phil Tippett tell the other people? Like, how do you instruct someone to make this? There's no through line or thought how do you even communicate what you what your vision is I, I i fundamentally don't even understand how that happens like he goes well i want it to be a monster it has to be disgusting i, I don't even know what like you do drawings and hand them to people i don't know uh, it's so it's an impressive thing to see but to what end right to what end? what what am i supposed to get out of this experience uh because i didn't get anything out of it frankly um, and, and, and in that sense, it does feel to me like numerous student films that I have seen over my life where I walk out of that and go, well, it means something to somebody, but it didn't <laughs> effectively communicate anything to me, the viewer. Mm. Um, and, you know, last week when we were doing the, uh, the After Dark, we were talking, uh, we got, I don't remember even how we got onto it, but we got sidetracked into uh, um, old uh, animation festivals and I remember bringing up at that point um, the Spike and Mike Animation Festival and the Sick and Twisted Animation Festival, which I went to a number of times. And I recalled a uh, a sequence from the Sick and Twisted Animation Festival from the '90s called Sloach's Funhouse. You can actually Google Sloach's Funhouse. S L O A C H E S. It is very similar to mad god it is disturbing it is a stop motion it is uh disgusting imagery and i remember seeing that it became this running joke among my friends it was sloches sloches fun house because that's how they say it in the in the short uh and and this movie just feels like as carlos uh, enumerated it it feels like a number of shorts just stuck together and each of those shorts elicits a sense of repulsion or, or disgust. Uh, so it, it's not like it doesn't create some emotional response, but I just, I, I don't think it does anything more than that. I, I, I wish I was also intrigued or moved or sparked to uh, think about life in some way. And I just wasn't right. It, it, it didn't, it didn't reach any deeper level other than pure aesthetic. And the aesthetic in this case is, is disgusting. Um, so in that sense, I don't, like I said, I can't recommend this movie. I don't think it's a worthwhile use of your hour and 23 minutes, but it is interesting that a creator with this level of skill brought this into being over actual decades of his life. Hmm. Well, Carlos, let me let me go back to you and ask you 
uh, first of all, if you have any response to that, <laughs> but also I'm curious, like, uh, to the extent that you took anything away, what did you take away from Mad God? Well, to me, uh, what I take away from it is this depiction of, of hell and the notion of what we think of it as, as the horrors of humanity sort of depicted in a way that's very graphic. You know, I think the the sort of hypothetical idea of what hell looks like and what the horrors that we imagine sort of being worse than the light that we live in here are, 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 are again, just hypothetical. And to me, just the fact that he, you know, he translated this sort of like, you know, images that he had in his dreams or that he interpreted from religious texts, you know, um, into something, you know, so tactile and, and tangible to me is just fascinating. You know, like the opening scene is, you know, the Tower of, of, of Babel, you know, and sort of like coming down and <clears throat> and the the sort of the, the way that humans always, you know, have a tendency for war and for you know destruction and sort of what does that lead into to me you know it's like dante's inferno going down into this the pits of hell and i think that the issue is oftentimes that because of the western way of of, of perceiving film we always want something clear to you know to to elicit from watching a film there has to be a meaning there has to be a specific point a clear message a clear arc to get something out of it and to me that's you know it's oversimplifying what cinema can do. I feel like sometimes, you know, uh, there no answer is the answer. Although I wouldn't say that this film doesn't it doesn't put forward anything. But you know, it may also have to do with the fact that you know we expect animation to be a certain thing. You know, stop motion animation used in a certain way, or that because it's Phil Tippett and he's working this very commercial, you know, beloved classics, that the expectation is that you know he would deliver something that would also you know, appeal to that, to that audience, you know, it's interesting to me that he, he doesn't, you know, that even though he's known for all these very commercial uh, things that what he really wants to make is something completely, you know, uh, separated from that. And the fact that it's now, I think, Shutter's more successful film, it's interesting because, you know, I feel like a lot of people went into watching it thinking that he, that he was going to deliver something familiar to, to what he's known for. And I don't know how many of those people that started watching it on Shutter actually finished the film. Uh, but, you know, but his name clearly attracted a lot of people uh, to watching it. You know, speaking to him, he said that by the end of... The creation of the film, he had a mental breakdown. He ended up in the psych war. You know, he was di- diagnosed with like mental health issues. You know, this really was sort of like a, um, oh, you know, a lot of artists always talk about, I left my sweat and blood and my whole, my body into this. And I think that very few times is as true as it is in this case, you know, that he really was spending 10 hours, you know, a day creating and perfecting and, you know, um, I think for and uh, one of the scenes that has a bunch of uh, soldiers, like piles and piles of dead soldiers or melted, you know, toy soldiers that took three years just to make the piles of soldiers, you know, would help every weekend. A couple of people will come and help and create those piles, you know, and, for, you know, for the the uh, the Tower of Babel scene in the opening, you know, that's done like in a water tank with different substances at a specific frame rate. There's a surgery scene that he recreated with live action actors and then, you know, had to change the frame rate to, you know, to sort of uh, resemble stop motion animation, even though he was working with, you know, live action actors. And so the level of detail, I I just, it's hard for me to think that someone will go to such lengths of creating something like this without having any, any meaning or without just, just for the aesthetics. I feel like that's, 
uh, oversimplifying the, what Phil Tippett does here. Yeah, I mean, so first of all, Jeff, you know me. I'm the person that likes conventional three-act structures more than anyone, right? Possibly even more than you guys on the on the podcast, typically, you know? Um, and uh, this certainly does not have that. Um, but you know how, like, something becomes so... Far, sometimes something can be so far away from what you're looking for in a movie that it actually circles back the other side and actually become something you're looking for. Has that ever happened yeah. to you? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't I, get me wrong. I'm not s- trying to say this film needed a three act structure. I, I just, honestly, I, I, there are plenty of movies that sort of just wash over me and give me a feeling. And that feeling is impressive. I'm a huge fan of tree of life, for example. Mm, um, mm. But I just didn't, I didn't get anything from this. I, I, Interesting. I, I didn't y- even the negative feelings. Like, like, have you have you ever okay i'll just start by saying i loved this movie i thought it was brilliant i was in awe of what i was watching it numerous times during the movie um i was also frustrated by the movie because i felt like it very easily could have had a more conventional plot um and that might have made it more accessible um and it might have made it more interesting uh, potentially but I was also very grateful for what the movie did accomplish, which is it is a lot of feelings. It is a lot of like sensations and visceral reactions. Um, and there's very few movies that even do that. I just watched Thor Love and Thunder last night and I got way stronger emotions out of Mad God than anything I saw in Thor Love and Thunder. Um, and so that alone makes it worth noting in my opinion. So like... I appreciated that this movie is trying to just evoke certain emotions. I appreciated the craft and the visual intricacy of it. Um, and it, it's not doing something that I want movies to do, which is just show a bunch of random images and scenes and feelings and thoughts. I don't like that in normal movies. But the way it's doing it is so brilliant that it won me over it it, like every frame every scene every shot was so creative and loaded with like you said carlos you you can tell that like oh there's a you see like ruined buildings in the background and you you know that someone physically built those ruins themselves with their hands and it's like wow that must have taken weeks just for this one five second shot you know and that is true throughout the 83 minute runtime of this film uh, where like every shot, it's like, wow, it's astonishing how they're able to just achieve that one shot. Um, dozens of times it happens throughout this film. And so, and yeah. I think that the opposite end of that to me is like, I had the misfortune of watching the new Minions movie this week. And uh-huh. which is about the same. Same running, the same running time as Mad God. And I, to me, watching the Minions movie with all those resources, it feels like a waste of people's lives, you know? Like people that work in that movie... <laughs> feel like they've wasted years of their lives working on this thing that means nothing, that is just a franchise to sell toys of these creatures that are, you know, the most insufferable things. And so, you know, and that movie is like... Take your kids to see Mad God instead. <laughs> no, it's, it's, not, it's not one or the other. I just yeah, feel yeah. like, you know, when... I, I, I guess I personally appreciate when the filmmaker has something to say and has something, you know, there's skin in the game. There's a, there's It's an artist trying to sort of like put something out there 
uh, to share with the world, whether it's disgusting or terrible or it makes you feel something, as opposed to like a corporate product that people, you know, went into a nine to five or whatever hours worked in it. And it's just like a paycheck, you know, and you can tell the difference between those two. And it's so rare in American animation to have something special like this because you know we see great films from france or japan or ireland now you know that are in animation that are so great because they're developed outside sort of these big studios but in the u.s all animation or most animation is you know the studio animation so it's so rare that we get to see independent american animation beyond you know Das Shah, who made Crypto Sue last year or two years ago, or, you know, Bill Plimpton, you know, there's so few that get to make feature films that are completely, you know, distant from the machine uh, in the US that, you know, I feel like the fact that he was able to to accomplish this with Kickstarters and sort of like having such a strong vision that will carry you over 30 years to me, that's, you know, a miraculous sort of achievement that means something, even even if he, even if he wasn't saying some, anything in the film, just the fact that it was accomplished to me is way more meaningful than what, you know, the Minions movie can do with their three-act structure and, you know, silly <laughs> comedy. Well, I, and I, I totally understand how you, you guys can appreciate the movie on a meta level. I think that I expressed my appreciation of it on a meta level as well. Like, the fact that it exists is impressive. And, and what you see on the screen, the level of pure labor that it required to make this is... It is, you kind of bow your head to it and you go, man, wow. But I, I still haven't heard either of you articulate what you got out of the movie. I did. Uh, well, I, I, yeah, yeah. It's, car, it's, it's, car, a, it's yeah. a reflection on the destruction, the tendency for destruction of humanity. It's a movie that's set in this world town, you know, horrific, deadly places, you know, going down literally to hell. To me, it's just a reflection of, of what we imagine hell to be in his war's depiction. Like, I just don't, it's hard for me to think of an artist spending so much time for the aesthetics of something and saying nothing. At least that's what I got out of it. To me, it's just, you know, it's a reflection on the worst side of humanity, on, on the worst things that we do to each other uh, and that we do to the planet. You know, it's a dystopian piece of, of, of cinema. You know, like there's many, you know, all the dystopian uh, movies that imagine what we've done to the planet, we've done to each other. And this is just one of those that's, you know, more abstract perhaps, but I don't think it's yeah. an empty piece. I, I, I would agree with Carlos that like there, um, there are very few movies that can evoke the feeling of what we imagine hell to be, right? Um, there has been many depictions of hell, many descriptions of hell throughout the decades and centuries, but very few movies do a good job of actually depicting what it might actually be like. And I think this um, movie, you know, which is mostly stop motion animation, uh, is able to kind of give you a taste of that feeling. This is, this is what it would be like. It would be like endless war, disgusting viscera, blood, guts, and shit everywhere. It would be people murdering themselves, uh, for pure, uh, just on a whim, you know, like people dying and being vaporized left and right and just being surrounded by the worst of humanity and, and feeling like constantly in danger, constantly under threat, constantly surrounded by just the absolute most disgusting things in the world. Um, so I think like that's on a base level, you know, the movie doesn't have much plot. It opens with a Leviticus um, quote which is one of the angriest books in the Bible um, where God is basically 
really angry at humanity. And he's like, if you disobey me, I'm going to crush you and destroy you. And, and I will turn you all against each other. And, um, sometimes I think about like, (laughs) you know, when I grew up, I grew up in a very conservative Christian church and I had this idea of like God being like an all loving God and all powerful. And as time has gone on, my, my vision has evolved. And I, I start wondering like, what if, um, God doesn't have as much control over things as 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 I thought he did. Like, what if what if he created humanity and kind of like let it go, like a wind up, you know, uh, clock or a wind up doll or whatever, and things have just like continually devolved. Like, what would that feel like to descend into a world that you created that had spiraled beyond your control? I think this movie kind of evokes that. You know, it evokes this vision of Earth, this vision of hell. Um, and what it must be like to try to like observe it, to seek out some treasure within it. Uh, so that that kind of feeling. And then, of course, we haven't even gotten to the ending yet. So um, I can talk a little bit about the ending. Um, we're, we're not going to really do a spoiler warning because it's really hard to figure out what's going on. But to the extent that, that I can describe what happens, there's this amazing sequence in the last 20 minutes where the guy with the... <laughs> I don't even know how to describe him. You know, the flowing things and the beak thing. He like grabs the baby that's taken out of the quote unquote assassin figure. And he travels through like all this way to get to this other guy. And like him, him journeying through all these like various things is like really beautiful. Like when he's traveling through that like maze that kind of like opens up the path to him. I thought that was just amazing to look at. And, um, the baby is then liquefied. <laughs> the baby creature is then liquefied by some kind of alchemist and then t- turned into glitter of some kind, like stone, diamonds, whatever. And then he kind of then throws it into this portal that then generates a whole other universe, which is a, it, it is a religious idea that um, the God of this universe is like destroyed and recreated the universe many times. Right. Uh, and so I thought this is like a really interesting depiction of that. You want to see another depiction of that? Um, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, another example of of that kind of idea. Uh, another movie, by the way, that kind of defies standard description in many ways. And yeah, so, I think it's a, in, in a meta way, is a reflection of the making of this movie, right? My, you know, Tippett is their own mad god creating yes. and destroying this world, you know. So I think it, it's really about that, about the the hope that if you start all over, it will be better, and that you know. There's no guarantee that if this if life as we know it is wiped out that we won't commit the same horrors all over again. Um, and so to me, it's, it's it's kind of hopeless in a way. The idea, you know, yeah. there's there's hope because there. when he does throw it in, he when he when they do create the world again, it, it does descend into madness again. Even in the last like three minutes that we see, as, as far as I can recall. Um, so anyway, sorry, Carlos, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead. No, no, yeah, in in the hope that 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 the recreation of the world. In that hope, there's hopelessness. When you realize that, you know, it might be inherent to the human nature or to to what we are, yeah. to to destroy and to kill, and that even, you know, even that notion of like God will come down and wipe everything, and you know, we will start again, doesn't guarantee that the horrors won't continue. So, Jeff, none of this is like spelled out in the text of the movie. Like, there's no dialogue, there's no on-screen text that says what's happening. But it's kind of, you know, we're bringing our own backgrounds, religious texts to it and kind of and, and, and the story of the making of the film itself to try to extract some kind of meaning out of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if any of that is convincing at all. If you're like, oh yeah, I see that now. Or you're just like, nope, didn't get that out of it. Like, what is your reaction to any of that? Yeah, I'm, I'm in the, nope, didn't get any of that out of it. But, it, <laughs> it, I, you know, I think the, the, the concern is always like, oh, I'm, I'm too simple to understand the, the depth of this uh, work of art, which, you know, uh, fair, I guess. But I, uh, I just wish... I, I didn't. I don't need a three act structure. I don't need dialogue spelling things out. I I I just wanted there to be, um, more like honestly. I'm not. I wasn't even disgusted by the movie. Like I didn't feel anything. It. The, I, there are movies that are more horrific than this. With that are much simpler. That are um, the like. I, I think it even we even over overhype it. But it's like it's it's like a depiction of hell. Like yes, but it's also like very simple. It's it's there's no there's nothing profound that I got from it personally. And I'm I'm really pleased that you both did. I'm really pleased that you both uh, found meaning in it. But I, I, it 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 felt to me like uh, sound and fury signifying nothing. That's that's what it felt like to me, and but clearly it means something to its creator. It's, clearly, it, this is a work of passion and and compulsion almost, um, and and I appreciate that. I I I think it's an amazing thing. It just I just wish it landed on me in some way, literally any way. I just didn't feel like it it moved me positively or negatively. It just felt like a nothing burger. It's, um, it's, it's interesting because I, I feel like I I agree that the movie doesn't give you that much to work with, right? Like it, right. it, it doesn't I, like, yeah, go ahead. Go no, ahead, no, I, I don't, but I also don't think, I think in the explanations that we're giving about the meaning, I don't think we're reaching. Like there's literally Leviticus yes. sex in the opening. Yes. There's a t- the Tower of Babel in the opening. Like, I don't think that the meaning that we're deriving from this movie is something that we that we or myself, I just made up and I pulled it out of my ass, you know, like it's, it's on the screen. Like, oh, I'm not suggesting that either. We're yeah, not reaching for these meaning in like, you know, as opposed to like, I don't know, like a movie by Terrence Malick, you know, not the tree of life is a masterpiece, but you know, song to song or one of those, you know, second rate Malick movies, you know, where you literally have to look for clues of like, what is this even about? I don't think that's the case here. I think it's, it's very clear even though it's unclear, you know, like there's, there's, there's clues, there is element, but I don't think it's a reach to derive the meaning but, that we're deriving from it. Right. But, but I think like, you know, Jeff, it doesn't sound like even, even if it was explained to you what was going on, it doesn't even sound like it works. You know, like there, there's movies that's, where uh, that, I'll give you an I, example. Yes. I, I'll give you an example. Um, I'm thinking of ending things, right? That's the, um, right. The Charlie Kaufman movie, I think, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I watched that movie. I was like, I have no idea what the fuck is going on. Then I spent like hours researching it. I actually made a video about what's actually happening in that movie. Like once I was told the explanation, I'm like, oh, it all locks into place. Like I, I get it now. I get that movie. It has a really clear explanation as to what's going on in that movie. Yeah. Um, we have attempted to provide the same thing for Mad God, but you're saying I, even I with am, that, I'm you're frustrated. like, yeah. I'm frustrated that you guys seem to be hung up on this notion that I don't understand the movie. Right, that, right, right. That, that you is, understand it. You're saying even on a craft level, it doesn't I'm work. Sa- right? I, I, I'm yeah. saying that what I don't understand is why this particular scene and then that particular scene, like what, what am I, so, why is this scene essential here? And why is that scene? Es- I understand the thrust of what is being conveyed. 
as mm-hmm. as you've uh, pointed out, uh, Carlos, that the Leviticus quote makes it real clear right at the beginning what we're doing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we, you know, and then we get a very long sequence of this thing descending, right? It's it's not it's not lost on me what is happening. I I don't I'm not looking for like oh what is this movie about? I understand what it's about. I'm saying it didn't for me. It was not effective in communicating how I should feel about, not even that. I know what the movie thinks I should feel. I just don't think that it's insightful. It's like the most, it feels to me like, yeah, no, of course, it's all like yucky. Yeah, that's, what else? What, I don't think any movie should tell you how to feel or that you should expect the movie to tell you how to feel about anything, honestly, or any piece of art for that matter. But but <laughs> but I think, Jeff, like, um, there, there, I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Okay, there's a scene of like human stick figures, like walking up to an open flame, right? And they look down, and then they're incinerated, right? You know, and then like another guy walks up, like a lemming, and like looks down and he's incinerated. It's like a constantly like never ending line. That's like mm-hmm. one scene from the movie, right? Yeah. Like one. 10 20 second shot from the movie and it's like i could there's a whole sort of uh i i could write a sort of thesis about just that scene and how it represents humanity and and the movie wants to just throw a bunch of that at, at you right yeah and i think your your beef is that it's throwing a bunch of that at you like you want it to like it, it would be preferable to structure it in a way that um flows better or makes more sense in a linear narrative perhaps right but like the fact that am i am i getting any of this because i'm trying to understand you're saying you like like tree of life and you didn't like this so i'm kind of wondering what is it that didn't work for you is it just the craft of it is it like you you literally felt like it looked bad you know what i mean or is it no 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 is it something about the linear narrative the non-linear narrative that didn't work for you like i'm trying to figure out what is it that like why tree of life is good why this bad you know Uh, i feel like you could (laughs) <laughs> I feel like you could re-edit this movie and it, it wouldn't change much, right? You could uh-huh. shift a bunch of stuff around in different order and it wouldn't, it, it literally is just like a, a series of moments. And yes, mm-hmm. some of those moments, like you're talking about, uh, th- there's a sequence where uh, this, you know, the steamroller is just like squashing these creatures. Um, I, there are a number of, of you brought up that maze moment. There are a number of like exquisitely executed high craftsmanship stop motion visions. But ultimately I didn't feel like it, it it brought insight into any particular feeling that I have. Like it didn't, I'm not asking it to spell out its, its, you know, how I'm, what I'm supposed to take away from it, but I didn't take away from it anything. I, I, I just, it didn't, it didn't feel, mm-hmm. it felt very masturbatory. It felt very, mm-hmm. um, for its creator. And that's fine. Like, that's fine. Phil Tippett clearly did get something out of it. And I'm glad mm-hmm. you guys got something out of it. It just mm-hmm. felt to me like, a very obvious observations back to back to back that mm-hmm. didn't 
it didn't provide didn't add up to anything more i kept I, uh, that that whole sequence with the baby and you know coming to the as we're coming to the end i'm like okay there's going to be some i see a through line here right um, the guy goes down he the baby's plucked out of him it's brought to this thing the thing brings it to the end it like there is a through line for the film and i kept going okay why did we go on this journey what how does this add up to some sort of, uh, I don't know, functional insight into hell or anything? I just didn't, I, I, it, and you know, maybe yeah. it is me just um, being too simple-minded, but I, 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 uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm not advocating. I'm not saying that, but I think there's, I think there's two separate questions. Like we have now identified two separate questions, right? One is, is it okay for a movie just to be a collection of random scenes that evoke some emotions, right? I think, I think I, so, yes. You're saying yes. You're saying it. Okay, so then separate from that is like, if a movie is that, are those scenes effective? And then for you, the answer is no, right? That's like, correct. But for, yes. for, me, for me and Carlos, I think the answer to both questions is yes. And for you, the answer to the first question is yes, and the, the answer to the second question is no, right? That's correct. That's you're correct. okay with it being I'm, just a random collection of memories, but like it didn't work for you. Um, yes, and I I, yeah. I I appreciate the fact that it worked for you guys, and I'm I'm yeah. glad. I wish it had worked for me. I was rooting for this movie. I you know I, like I said, I'm a huge fan of this creator and 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 this medium. Uh, but it just it it felt to me redundant and overwrought and and ultimately pretty basic. You know, it didn't it didn't feel like a profound meditation on anything to me. Mm -hmm. Um. Well. Uh, I'll say a couple last things. Um, Carlos, you know, I'm curious, like, if you have any thoughts on uh, the stop motion animation itself um, as we wrap up here. Like, I, I found it to be really effective uh, and, and just, like, so unique because we don't usually see stop motion animation. We, we all get these, we, all we see these days is the light year CG stuff. And I really like stop motion because, first of all, the texture, you can tell, like, 99% of the objects on screen are wet or mm. moist in some way, right? And like, you just don't get that same feeling with CG. Um, the way like light moves and reflects off of these objects just feels like there's an actual object in real life that's there, again, that you don't get from a movie like Lightyear. Um, and there's like imperfections, you know, imperfections in the character's clothing and in the lighting and in the camera movements uh, that I appreciate, I actually appreciate in a movie like this. Carlos, any thoughts on just like the craft or the medium that, the, that he chose for this? Yeah, I mean, you know, even even when we do get stop motion animation, it's very polished. You know, I'm thinking about Fantastic Mr. Fox or, you know, Frank and Weenie or yeah. the Leica Wallace movies. Wallace and Gromit. Yeah. yeah, all the Leica movies, you know, that are very incredibly crafted, but they're they're produced with like millions of dollars with huge teams, you know, as opposed to Phil Tippett working with volunteers, you know, that will come uh, on the weekends to help him with the sort of the bigger scenes and mostly just on his own, you know, with resources, you know, gather from kickstarter or you know from his own resources or whatnot so the sort of the level of um you know resource resourcefulness that you have to have you know to sort of invent the things that you're creating you know because uh, there's no real map to like how you do these things you know again like the tower of babel put it in, the, in a water tank and then testing which liquid will create the clouds the way that he wants it and at what frame rate you know i feel like if this was done at Leica. There will be, you know, many other more sort of like uh, practical ways or, or doing it in, in, you know, in post uh, for certain things. And he wanted to to make it 
almost 100%, you know, tangible in stop motion. I think he mentioned that there were just a few things that were, you know, almost physically impossible for him to accomplish that had to be done, you know, as VFX. But in general, you know, the, yeah, the lack of resources and what he was able to accomplish with that and with, you know, the few help that he got here and there to me is fascinating because, yeah, even even when you think about stop motion, you know, it's always polished and it's used to tell stories that are, you know, for younger audiences or family audiences. And, and this is something that uh, could only be accomplished by someone having no master, you know, having no one to answer to right. but himself. And so even within stop motion, I think this one is uh, on a, you know, on a league on its, of its own. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I would agree with that. I, I, I do think that, I mean, there's a sequence where the protagonist, I guess you could call it for at least, you know, half the movie um, is uh, I think uh, walking or, or going fast at some point, And there's like wind ruffling his clothes constantly. And it's, it's incredible how that is, realized in the and you you talk about Leica I'm a huge fan of Leica but I will say their stop motion is so good that it often looks like CG it is so smooth and so perfect and and that's not an indictment of them I I, I think I say that with reverence but oftentimes you look at those movies and you go oh is this a, that new CG movie that's that's coming out because uh, there, it is not rough around the edges, and uh, this this form, uh, the way that that Mad God looks, it, it it you never forget that you are watching inanimate objects given life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, we talked last week on the After Dark about how comparing Mad Max Fury Road to uh, Top Gun Maverick was not an appropriate comparison because Mad Max Fury Road is incredible and Maverick is like a really good action movie. Uh, this feels to me, I, I would actually put this up there with Mad Max. Like, I, I thought about Mad Max Fury Road when I was watching this movie. I don't think it's as good as Mad Max Fury Road. Um, but they obviously both have Mad in the title and they're both uh, <laughs> the product of of creators that had a singular vision that they persisted at executing over the course of many decades. Uh, and I think that makes this film really special. So anyway, at the end of the day, I think it's really impressive that Phil Tippett and his band of volunteers made Mad God, which is streaming right now on Shudder and AMC+. Uh, and I think that's going to wrap us up for today. That's going to bring us to the end of this episode of the podcast. Um, Carlos Aguilar, I want to say a big thank you for joining us, man. Really appreciate it. Where can people find more of your stuff? Or is there anything you want to point people to this week? Uh, not really right now, but you know, on, on Twitter, you go always follow me at Carlos underscore film, uh, where I share all the things I'm writing and check out Carlos's, uh, conversation with Phil Tippett from the New York times. We'll link to it in the show notes. You can find more episodes of this podcast at thefilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes courtesy of Tim McEwen from the midnight. Uh, check out his new project varsity blue. This episode was edited by me, David Chen. Next week, we're going to be discussing Thor, Love and Thunder. There will be no normal After Dark this week, uh, but if you are a patron, we're going to try to get you the Thor, Love and Thunder episode early. So check that out at patreon.com slash film podcast. Thanks to everyone who supports us over there. Uh, we will see you later. <laughs> <laughs>